I think every time that, that we come to Shavuot, we, we need to, to pause and reflect on the goodness of God in bringing completion and fullness and the faithfulness of God to bring something out of death that we could not imagine. What was the most difficult theological proposition that Yeshua offered to his disciples? It was this, that Messiah must suffer and die and rise on the third day. And no matter how they looked at the scriptures, no matter how they tried to grasp it inside, they rejected it. It went against the learning that had been passed on to them. It went against their their accumulated understanding and wisdom. And it went against the desires of the natural mind and soul. Because if Messiah, who is to bring victory, must suffer, then what about all those who join themselves to him? Well, that's not such a good deal. I mean, we were looking for a Messiah who would change everything like that. And just make it better. I remember growing up, I remember studying among our teachers. And we were taught that Messiah would change everything. And that there would be this this new messianic era. When the nations wouldn't war against the nations and when the, the swords would be beaten into plowshares, when, when things would be different. Just like that, they would be different. And that's what we wanted and that's what we yearned for. And 2,000 years ago, there was such an idea as well that when Messiah comes, everything's going to be different. All this stuff that brings sorrow and manifests difficulty, all of it will be put behind us. And so it was outrageous. It was unthinkable. It was unpopular for Yeshua to say, Messiah must suffer and die and rise from the dead. The whole idea just stinks. And no one liked it. And it was an unacceptable thing. When Yeshua did die, all hope was lost. And everyone who had thought that he was going to bring in the kingdom in a different way, they were all disappointed. They were all scattered. They saw the death of their master as the end of their hope. It was a tragedy. It ruined everything. Isn't that the way we look at death? Isn't that the way we understand death? Don't we think that death stops everything? And Yeshua was trying to say something that was so far beyond theology that it required more than theological explanation because he had already told them what they couldn't agree with. 
And so we read in the last chapter of Luke that one of the last things that Yeshua did is he took his disciples aside and he opened up their minds and their understanding that they could now comprehend the whole picture of Tanakh. And they could see now what they hadn't been able to see. Now, prior to that, they had seen that Yeshua had risen from the dead. And so they had accepted, okay, we understand. We understand now that you're back. Let that be the way it is. Now let's get on with the business of this Messiah stuff. Let's drive out the Romans, return sovereignty to the children of Israel. Let's bring an end to the times of the nations trotting down Jerusalem. Right? And Yeshua said, wrong. That's not what we're focusing on right now. He said, what we're focusing on right now is I'm leaving. I just finished something. I'm leaving. Now that's bad. It's like death, is it not? And Yeshua, who rose from the dead and now opened up the minds of his disciples so that they could comprehend what was hidden from them in the scriptures, now says to them, I'm leaving. It's been great. Except for the dying part. That was bad. There's some other parts were bad. But now I'm going, and I'm going where you can't go. That's what he said to them. I'm going where you can't go. And I'm going to do what you can't do, but what you need. You need me to do something else. It's not enough. This will break some of your, it'll trouble you. It's not enough that I've now paid for the sins of the world. It's not enough. I've got to return to heaven. I've got to send the Holy Spirit down. He's got work to do on my behalf. I have now made a way, Yeshua was saying to his disciples, for you to become little sanctuaries, little holy places, where God himself can come in and take up residence. Because There's more that's about to happen that you're not going to like. This temple, where the Messianic Jews and all the other Jews would worship on holidays like Shavuot and, and Pesach and Sukkot. This temple will come crashing down. That's terrible. No. It's necessary. And so every time Yeshua is bringing good news to the sick, the afflicted, the diseased, the blind, he is also bringing bad news to the natural mind. Am I right? And he is saying, you think now. You've got to figure it out. And now it's going to work the way you thought. Now this messianic era is going to be just the way you thought. Wrong. 
I've got to go, he said. I've got to go. I'm going to go. But this time, you stay. Last time, when I hung on the cross, you split. Don't do that again. He said, don't you go. Don't even think about leaving Jerusalem. Can we stay at the King David? Now the upper room will be enough. And so they stayed together. And while they were celebrating Shavuot, not just Arab Shavuot, but it says when, when the day of Shavuot had fully come, that's when the Holy Spirit was poured out. And then it was all new again. Everything was new. Because the heart of these people who were following Yeshua was to bring the good news to their own Jewish people. They didn't have this grand idea, let's create Catholicism. Or, hey, here's an idea, Russian Orthodoxy. Baptists, Methodists, these all came later, later, later. At that moment, their goal was very specific. They wanted the Jewish people to hear good news, to receive good news, knowing it would break some of their thinking. It would require changes. It would, it would not fit into what they had understood and what they were expecting, but it was still good news. And that's why the Holy Spirit comes and Messianic Jews are speaking in tongues and there's a local debate. Are they drunk? No, it's the Holy Spirit. It looks like it's drunk. Drunkenness? No, it's the Holy Spirit. We're not drunk the way you think. It's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit begins to speak through all of the disciples in such a way that every Jew gathered from every distant land who had assembled in Jerusalem and was in that area could hear in their own native tongue words that were being said. One heard it in Greek, another one heard it in, in Latin, if you will, another heard it in the Cretan language and so forth. And yet they, these Messianic Jews, they were just, they were just, what were they doing? What were they doing? You know, I was, I, I got a French book recently on the religions of the world and it's trying to describe the, the, the current state of Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, and uh, a few other things. And I was trying to describe um, being filled with the Spirit in just a few words. And so, you know, I don't really read French, but I found a lot of languages, if you read them out loud, you can understand them. And so it talked, it, it translated the phrase about what happened at, you know, Pentecost as 
the outpouring of ecstatic utterances, which would make sense, you know, the French like ecstasies. Is that right? But I think it's more than just ecstatic utterances. Because that implies that it's primarily being lost in an emotional situation. And yet it was more than that. There was real content coming forward because people were hearing the proclamations of what God had done in their own language. And so something was happening that was understandable even though it was not understandable. It was, it was baffling, but it could be explained. And Peter did explain it, and the response of the Jewish people was to say, we want that. It didn't fit in to the pattern, but they wanted it. And I think it's good at, at Shavuot for us to stop and to say, God does not conform to your understanding. He does not adhere to your rules and regulations. He's not bound by the limitations that you and I want him to be. He will not do what you command him to do. And when you pray to him as if he is to say amen to you, you will sometimes be surprised that he will not answer your prayers. He won't even say no. He will ignore sometimes. I know that from experience. And he is looking for something else. He is looking for us to say, I don't understand death, but I know it's not the end. It's a new beginning. I don't understand what seems like abandonment when God is seeming to be far away, but he's not. Because what follows that experience of apparent abandonment is actual extreme intimacy. Yeshua goes far away where no one can go with him. And then the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence inside of us where no one could get in. And so he was right there with us. And then he's gone. How dare he do that? That's not nice. But we learned that the power of resurrection includes the power to give life to things that appear dead to us. To... To see God at work means sometimes that things have gotten terrible and yet they're not over. They only look terrible for the time being. But in fact, God works from those broken situations, those broken conditions, those terrible, awful situations and he turns them for good. And so it's no surprise that that. All Jews, not just Messianic Jews, but all Jews use Shavuot as a time of focusing also on the book of Ruth, which is a book that describes in a certain way the power of death to destroy hope in a future. 
And then it shows the power of God over death. It's no surprise also that Ruth, this woman who was a Moabitess, the the descendant of incestuous Moab, that this woman becomes a key figure in Messianic history. And so the custom in the in the Jewish world is to take time during Shavuot to read the whole scroll, the whole book of Ruth. We'll read just a little part. I want to read to you. It came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. In a certain man of Bethlehem, which means house of bread in Judah, went to live, to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. Do you understand that there was a famine often in, in biblical history? A famine, the, the lack of rain, the lack of food, which means death to animals and potential death to those who depend on food, human beings. That the famines come to mark an important moment. Not just a testing, not just a trial, but something is about to be born in the supernatural. And only when all natural means of, of generation are, are stopped. That's, it's like a famine in the natural is followed by something amazing in the supernatural. A certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi. The names of his two sons were Mahlon and Hilion, Ephratites of Bethlehem and Judah. And now they entered the land of Moab and they remained there. And then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. So now you have three Jews living in the land of Moab. None of them have a Jewish future and a hope. She was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah. And the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And then both Mahlon and Chilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. And now there's one Jew in the land of Moab. And then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. Ten years later, surrounded by death, the famine is over. And so Naomi departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, you go and return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them. And they lifted up their voices and they wept. 
Because now was yet another moment of abandonment. Now was another moment where death was touching life and there was no hope and there was no future. They cried. And they said to her, these two Moabitesses, No, we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, If I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Naomi, in a time of famine, went to Moab and saw all of her family die. And her conclusion was, the hand of God is against me. They lifted up their voices. They wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. And she departed. But Ruth clung to her. Naomi said to Ruth, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people. And look at this. And her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Do you understand what Ruth is saying? I'm returning to my people and to my God, but it doesn't go well for us. It'd be better for you. Go back to what you had before. This life is rotten. Go back. Go back to your people. But Ruth said to her, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And thus may the Lord, and here, We could say, and thus may Hashem, because she uses that most intimate name of God. Thus may Hashem do to me, and worse, if anything but death, parts you and me. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. I want you to see something that's at work here. Death is trying to bring an end to everything there. That's what it looks like to Naomi. But that's not what it looks like to Ruth. Ruth has lost her beloved husband. But you know what she's ready to lose? She's ready to lose her people in order to go on with the Jewish people. She's ready to lose her identity as a Moabitess in order to continue on with the Jews. She is ready to forsake the God of Moab in order to follow the God of Israel. She's ready to give up her past for a different future. Her mother-in-law, her Jewish mother-in-law, sees no future. 
And Ruth, the Moabitess, does. Ruth is ready to make a choice. To serve a people. And to be with the people. She's ready to choose a life. She's ready to choose a God. And you know what's happened to Ruth? She has become free. Instead of death ending her hopes and her dreams, she's free. She's free. She's not bound. She's not limited. The past doesn't define her. The future is opening up to her. But everything's gone wrong. But this isn't everything yet. And she makes a choice. She makes a choice that is unreasonable and yet makes total sense to her. Where you go, I go. You stop, I stop. You die, I'll wait. I'll wait until I'm dead. It's all right. Your people, the ones you left ten years ago, I'll go with you when you go back. Here's a widow. No hope, no future. Two widows, a young widow, not even Jewish. And she says, I'm going with you. You're going with me? You ought to go back. But God used this woman, Ruth, to bring life to Israel. Who were some of her descendants? David, King David. Mashiach, Yeshua. Can you imagine that history turned on this woman? What I mean by that is history depended on her. She became the axis point that connected two parts of history that no one could have anticipated. How can a Moabitess be useful? They're good for nothing. And yet it shows us something because this is a Shavuot text for us. It shows us that God knows how to use death to make new beginnings. It shows how death of one thing is not the end of everything. Death of our beloved isn't the end of everything. Why? Because there's resurrection life. But there's also life in this world. And the power of resurrection is not just the power of a future eternal resurrection. It's the power of resurrection in this world now. And Yeshua rose from the grave in this world in order to demonstrate that to you and to me. So that we would reorient our understanding and our thinking that it was true. He had to suffer. He had to die. He had to rise on the third day. Why? Oh, so we can fill out our theological exams and get the answer right. Right? Because there's going to be a pop quiz in heaven. Okay, three questions. Did Yeshua have to suffer? Oh, yeah. Did he have to die? Yeah. Did he have to rise on the third day? Absolutely. Okay, you're in. (laughs) Yeah, I crammed for that one. No, it's not because of a pop quiz. It's because you need to know that now. It's important now. 
That understanding now is what caused the disciples to change their perspective so that they could stay together, so that they could wait for the Holy Spirit, so they could receive the Holy Spirit, so they could minister with power to their own Jewish people and thus to the world. That changed everything. And every one of us will go through some experience in this world where we will face death of a loved one. We will face death of a relationship. We will face death of our sense and understanding of our future. Death of our vision for what's ahead. And you know what really dies during those times? Is our wrong thinking. Our wrong understanding. Our idea that God will conform to our plans and programs. And he won't. And so death comes, but it doesn't end everything. There's yet another moment when God deals with us. It says, you thought that was bad news. But look what I accomplished through it. And then he does something great. He did it with Ruth. He does it with you and me. He did it with the disciples. You cannot escape the experience of death and resurrection life. The only question is, how will you go through it? You can't control the details. Everyone I know wants someone else's details. I have been with many people who have mourned loved ones, and when someone dies suddenly, you know what the family always says, we wish we'd had more time. My mother had a brain hemorrhage, and it took more than 10 years for her to die. And my whole family said, we wish you'd gone quickly. You see, if someone goes quickly, you want them to go slowly. If they go slowly, you want them to go quickly. Whatever it is that you experience, you wish you had the other. That's the way it is. And you just got to accept that it's out of your control. You don't get to choose how your loved ones will die. Those decisions you don't make. But Ruth shows us something. The disciples show us something. Death is not the end. It's not the end of your life. It's just the beginning of another chapter. It's not the end because those who you love, who who follow God, will be reunited with you. In a time, not the messianic era, but in the world to come. When the resurrection takes place. And when nothing is the way it used to be. And people don't exactly look the way they used to look. But they break bread maybe. The way they used to break bread. Some of their distinctives carry on. And you can begin to recognize each other. Somehow. Elijah is still Elijah. Moses is still Moses. Yeshua, he doesn't look the same, but he is the same.
But I tell you this. We look at Ruth, we look at the disciples, and we see people who changed at Shavuot. People who were different. And they found, they found something amazing that they could honestly describe the past and its sorrows, but they're not stuck there. Ruth isn't stuck. Naomi's not even stuck. The disciples who ran for the Galilean hills when Yeshua died, they're now back in Jerusalem. They're not stuck. It's amazing. It's wonderful. Tomorrow I hope to speak about uh, about something about I, I want to pray tomorrow for people who marry Jews but aren't Jewish themselves by birth but like Ruth have joined themselves to the Jewish people and I want I want those of you to enter into the freedom that God has for you and tomorrow I want to pray for you know I was going to do this tonight but there's no time Maybe I can do one sentence of prayer for this. I wanted to pray for everybody who came out of Christian churches into the Messianic movement, and you're just angry with Christians and churches. And when it's like you, you're stewing for 101 reasons. You've got 3,000 details. You've got a list of faults. And... Uh, you're angry with Christian anti-Semitism. You're angry with replacement theology. You're, you're angry with erroneous doctrines and false promises. And, you know, you got a list. But the main thing is you're angry. And I want to pray for you that you can get free. Because as long as you're angry in that way, you know what? You've got a ball and chain that ties you to your past. And you will never... Walk in freedom until you can cut that ball and chain and just forgive them and move on. And there's a time when you can say, they need to change. They don't. It's none of your business. (laughs) They got their problems. Why do you want to make their problems your problems? Everybody's got enough problems. Why would you want their problems to become your problems? So that now you've got your problems and their problems. Isn't it hard enough already with your problems? And we've just got to get free enough to make choices and to say, like Ruth said to Naomi, I'm not going back to them. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. And it's not anger, it's not hatred, it's just, I understand my calling. And I got called out. You hear what I'm saying? And, and then you get free, you're, you're no longer a critic. You don't have to find fault with everything, you don't have to justify yourself. Because as long as you are in that condition of anger and criticism...
your identity is still way back there. And you're still tied in. Because you're still depending on others' approval. And others' way of understanding. It's like trying to be a Moabitess in Israel. And always talking about Moab. Well, in Moab, they always did it wrong. You know, they did this and that. Well, you're out of Moab. You remember that song, We Gotta Get Out of This Place? If it's the last thing we ever do. I want to pray for any of you right now. I'm, I'm going to go into a little more up tomorrow. Because I think I'll have time. But if you're stuck because you've been angry and critical... I'm not talking about not paying attention to things, but don't be absorbed in it all. It's not your life. Unless that's your life. In which case, this isn't your life. Sorry. I'll tell you about our experience, how I came to this understanding in Odessa in 1995, tomorrow, but not today. You can hear it on podcast if you want. But anybody who just needs to be set free, like you're sick and tired of being sick and tired of others, you can, Emma, are you the only one standing up? You want this? Okay. You want that? Okay. Anybody else you can, you know, who needs it, you can stand up. I just want to pray just something very quick for you. Lord, Shavuot is a feast of revelation. There is no famine. It's a feast where we can dine at your table and enjoy your revelation. The revelation of your Torah, the revelation of your spirit. And we have freedom. It's a, it's a feast that is connected to our freedom. It's when slavery starts getting out of us. Slavery to old ideas and wrong ideas to old systems and slavery to our past. I pray now for those who, who, who are struggle with anger, who are just angry with Christian churches for this and that reason. And I pray, Lord, that you would set these captives free and break the balls and chains and let them truly forgive and move on and not stand as hostile, bitter people always looking back and always looking for approval. Let them know that they follow you into a different future and that from their place, they can stand securely and they can love everyone regardless of how they understand and think. Give us that freedom, Lord, to forgive and to move on. I pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Shavuot, Sameach. Next week, bring a Jewish friend. If you don't have a Jewish friend, bring a Jewish enemy. <laughs> bring someone who doesn't like you. Nah, better a friend. Bring someone who doesn't know the Lord or someone new. Bring someone back. And... Walk together with that person on the journey that God's called you on. Let's close with <laughs> let's close with Aaron's blessing, can we? Thank you, Rabbi.
I love you, Kevin. I love you too. The Lord bless you. The Lord protect you. The Lord cause light from his face to shine upon you, removing darkness. The Lord be gracious to you with his favor. The Lord lift up his face to you, smiling on you, giving you his peace. In Yeshua's name, amen.